Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Okay, I'm here with Pete Mulvihill, who I have known since what? 1979. 1979. And we met because you were taking a diving class. I was curious what was under the surface of the ocean. Walked into a dive shop one day, and somebody there taught me how to scuba dive. And that somebody would be me. Yes. Yeah, that was fun. That was the beginning of a, of a really interesting, really interesting friendship. And you, of course, were a fire protection engineer, which I'd never heard of before. I am a fire protection engineer. Uh, my career is split actually about evenly in half between the private sector and the public fire service. So most recently, from which you have now retired, and which pisses me off, you uh, you were the fire marshal for the state of Nevada. That's correct. I was uh, formerly I was the chief of the state fire marshal division for the Nevada Department of Public Safety. So we were the fire guys in the state's law enforcement agency. Kind of a, an oddball little group, uh, but uh, it was uh, a good experience. Uh, participated with the other divisions, got to see another aspect of uh, public safety, uh, the law enforcement side, and it was a very valuable experience. Yeah, my dog's upstairs barking, apparently thinks we're being invaded by neighbors or something. And And prior to that, as I recall, you were the guy that had to sign off on anything that got built in Las Vegas. No. I was working for an engineering company. I was managing the Las Vegas office of um, a national fire protection engineering firm. And we were doing design and uh, also the commissioning and startup uh, for fire and life safety systems for uh, a number of the resort. Uh, hotel, casinos there, but also large commercial buildings, hospitals, and um, other uh, complex facilities. I also uh, did work outside Las Vegas. Uh, I was able to escape Las Vegas on occasion and and get to other areas in the West where I worked on uh, major complex projects. And and obviously in a place like Las Vegas where you've got large concentrations of not only capital value, but people, fire protection becomes a pretty central issue for obvious reasons. Uh, And throw into that mix uh, business interruption. Uh, People can be safe, uh, but if the uh, business shuts down for any given amount of time, uh, the company does not make a profit and can't pay their bills. They have no income coming in, whether that's one hour, one day, or one month. And for certain businesses, that can be a more costly impact than damage to a building. Interesting. So, Pete, while you've been visiting here, you told me a story about what I believe is something called the Beatty Dump Fire that I found really interesting and it made me curious. So would you mind telling me that story? Sure. In October 2015, I got a text uh, one afternoon that the Beatty Dump outside Beatty, Nevada, was on fire. Now, this was a little bit of a concern. Uh, This was a low-level radioactive waste 
uh, storage facility that closed in the early 90s. And the types of materials that were disposed of there were, for instance, from medical centers, the gowns and the gloves that had handled um, nuclear medicine materials, maybe slightly contaminated, would get buried here. Some materials exposed to um, atmospheric testing from a nearby Nevada test site. Slight contamination would get buried here. And the site had been closed. Um, pretty stable, not much going on with it. Uh, I responded in my role as the state fire marshal to the state's emergency operations center to assist with the emergency planning and response planning for that. We received a video from the site of uh, a portion of the ground um, with the soil being churned up, uh, some 55-gallon drums being expelled from the ground. Oh, good. And there was a fire burning in the ground. The dirt was on fire from what it would appear from the video. And it looked like a um, looked like a giant road flare. So, you know, pretty substantial. Part of my curiosity and, and the whole reason I think I got into the engineering field was I like to solve problems. And problem solving starts with observation, uh, not jumping to conclusions, breaking large problems into small individual pieces and working through those individual pieces in a methodical manner to get to the answer at the end. So we began um, investigating this. My agency was responsible for investigating all fires on state properties, among others, and this was state property. Uh, we worked together with a number of really good uh, resource partners, uh, the Nevada National Guard Civil Support Team, Las Vegas uh, Metropolitan Police Department's Armor Team. Um, one of my own officers uh, met down there. There was overflights by uh, the EPA's uh, Remote Sensing Laboratory. No radioactive materials were sensed. A lower level overflight by the EPA's RSL. No uh, radioactive materials were uh, sensed in that flight. The teams responded to the site no radioactivity. So this was this was good. Uh, it still left the question what was going on. The fire had burned itself out overnight the first night. In the morning everything was uh, calm. There had been some heavy rains, thunderstorms. Uh, there had been local road flooding. Um, the highway between uh, Beatty and the Las Vegas metropolitan area was actually severed. US 95 was closed uh, due to floodwaters coming over the road. Let me, let me stop you for a second. Can you describe what this site kind of physically looks like? It's uh, picture the desert floor with a mound on it, and that's it. Not an awful lot out there. Not much in the way of vegetation. It was very arid. It is a very arid part of the state. Uh, it does not get a lot of rain. In uh, the past uh, 10 days, it had received about an inch and a quarter of rain, though. So that was pretty significant uh, runoff and 
there were flooding issues as a result of it. And a number of the dry creek beds and uh, small canyons that come out of the mountains collect the water and it just comes shooting out of them at high velocity. So we knew what the issue wasn't. It wasn't a uh, radioactive waste, low-level radioactive waste uh, fire. Uh, but something burned, and dirt out there does not burn. We began looking into the uh, materials that had been buried there. Uh, the state's radioactive control office retrieved uh, from the state archives uh, a very large number of archive boxes of all the records that uh, of the materials that went into the dump. And they started going through that. Getting to the, uh, the end, kind of sh cutting it a little short here, uh, it turns out that there were 116 55-gallon drums of metallic sodium had been buried uh, in this particular location. Um, the dump was comprised of a series of trenches, and the documentation was very detailed, what was in what trench and where in the trench it was. So, so for our listeners who aren't chemists, um, let's, let's explain to people the magic of, of sodium. So sodium is an alkali metal that will combine with chemicals called halogens, things like chlorine, for example, uh, to create salts. So a very stable material. A very stable material, sodium chloride, which, right. which we sprinkle on our food. But sodium in and of itself is actually a metal. And Pete, tell us about that metal. Well, not combined with anything else. It wants to combine. It is very hungry to combine with something like chlorine or other uh, elements. And uh, in sodium's case, when it sees water, it is very aggressive at stripping the HO ion off the water molecule and producing Sodium hypochlorite. And in the process... Uh, I'm sorry, not sodium. Sodium hydroxide. Sodium hydroxide. And in the process, creating a fairly significant explosion or a, a pretty aggressive reaction. Well, it the extra hydrogen off the water molecule gets together with another hydrogen molecule and produces hydrogen gas. So you have the expansion of the gas, and that's what caused the soil to bubble and churn up. And it produces a lot of heat. And as soon as that heat and the hydrogen were exposed to the air, it ignited the hydrogen, which also ignited the sodium and some um, magnesium that was also uh, in the sodium due to its origins. And I remember being in, in chem labs at Berkeley. I remember when I was an undergrad that when we worked with sodium metal occasionally and it was stored in bottles of kerosene and the kerosene basically kept water from mm -hmm. coming in touch with it. And the other cool thing about it was it was soft like butter. You could slice it with a butter knife. Yes. And we often did just to slice off a little tiny piece for some kind of a reaction that we were trying to create. Yep. Really interesting. Okay. I interrupted you. I apologize. Not a problem. In this case, the uh, sodium had been packaged in 55 gallon drums, uh, submersed in mineral oil and uh, buried. Uh, nowadays, we probably wouldn't dispose of sodium that way. We'd probably reprocess it, recycle it, uh, you know, put it to use in some manner. But back then, that was the state of the art. Um, that was the standard of care 
uh, on how to deal with this material. Over time, underground, the, the drums corroded, uh, the oil drained away, and as the ground settled, uh, small cracks opened up in the, uh, the earth cover over this trench. With this heavy rain, water infiltrated into the ground, uh, reached the sodium, and caused this reaction. And then once the uh, sodium began to burn, uh, it continued to burn until it consumed itself. We determined how, uh, how this all worked by not only finding the records of what was buried in there, but confirming what the material was on the ground around it. And there was, uh, it was sodium hydroxide. And you showed me a photograph of this. There's this big mm -hmm. white spray of, of a chemical wash that you, it turned out to be sodium hydroxide, a salt. Yep. And... Um, so it uh, started out with a, a, a very unusual event, uh, complete unknowns all around. And at the end, uh, the investigators, the staff, uh, with support from the state's Division of Environmental Protection, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services Radi Radiation Control Office, and uh, the Division of Emergency Management, uh, we were able to piece all of this together and come up with a pretty straightforward answer um, by not jumping to conclusions, being curious, and uh, going through a methodical uh, problem-solving process. Okay, now I'm curious. So we had 116 55-gallon drums full of metallic sodium. Yes. Why did we have 116 metallic drums full of sodium? Well, there were two locations uh, that uh, were using sodium in uh, nuclear research as a uh, potential coolant for reactors. One was the C4 project uh, in Alabama, and another was a research facility um, up in Westchester County, New York. And when they got done with their uh, research, the sodium had been exposed to uh, nuclear bombardment. Uh, sodium will turn into uh, an isotope. Some parts of it will turn into a, uh, an isotope, which is radioactive, but has a half-life of just a matter of days. Still in all, it needed to be isolated and contained. Uh, it was packaged up. The uh, isotope of sodium as it degrades becomes magnesium. Um, by the time it was packaged, delivered to Nevada, it was probably pretty cold. It, it was about 30 days or so in shipment. Uh, there wasn't any radioactivity, but still in all, it was uh, at that time determined that it should be buried. And uh, like I said, nowadays, we would probably do something else with it. It, it wouldn't be radioactive anymore. And you would not throw that resource away. Okay, let, let me back up for a second. So what was the purpose of the sodium in these two locations? They were the coolant for a uh, uh, reaction uh, vessel. So, okay, so let me now jump forward again. And you said that, that this sodium isotope, once it degrades, it mm -hmm. turns into magnesium. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you're leading up to something that matters here. Well, magnesium also burns, and that was part of what was burning. The sodium was burning. 
the magnesium uh, was burning. The ignition of the hydrogen gas by the sodium water reaction probably ignited the magnesium first, the trace amount of magnesium in the metal, and then uh, probably the higher energy off of that combustion led to the sodium also burning. So, so had you not professionally been curious about what was really going on here, it would have been fairly easy to leap to a conclusion that we had a massive nuclear leak on our hands because we knew that nuclear stuff was here. But because you took the time to say, okay, let's, let's take this one step at a time. What's the white stuff on the ground? Why does this look like a road flare, a gigantic road flare that's burning here? What is actually buried here? Let's not just presume that mm-hmm. it's nasty stuff. Let's go take a look and you know, look at the archives, look at the, the data, because data doesn't lie. And let's analyze that a step at a time. Now, you have a perspective on, on resolution of complex problems that I really like. And you were talking about it last night. You, you said basically, I want you to expand on this. You said that big complex problems really tend to be a collection of smaller complex problems. A collection of smaller individual problems. And taking a large complex problem breaking it down into manageable, let's say, bite-sized pieces, simplifying it in that manner. Then you solve one piece, you move on to the next piece, you solve it, you move on to the next piece, you solve it. That may produce an answer that makes you go back sometimes and revisit an earlier uh, problem, but you continue to progress through Uh, a series of small manageable problems and come up with an answer to a large complex problem. The only way to eat an elephant. Exactly. One little bite at a time. Right, right. So, so give me an example. Give me an example of, of what appears to be a large complex problem and probably is, but analyzed as a series of smaller problems. Well, many years ago, uh, I work for a, a, a fire department, and we managed to burn down a city block. I, sus- I suspect you didn't. No, burn. no, no, yeah. no, no, no. But, you know, <laughs> anytime you burn down a city block, if you work for the fire department, that's, that's a bit of a failure. Um, you don't like to have that happen uh, even once. Not a resume maker. Um, no. So uh, this is multiple buildings. Um, There was a a significant large building, but it had multiple tenant spaces in it. And now you're looking at uh, basically a a city block that is uh, collapsed in rubble, uh, debris on the street. Debris was on a a railroad branch line. the train couldn't get through. Uh, this is a, a big issue. Um, the way to look at it is to look at each component of that block, each building or tenant space, and start with the least damaged areas and work towards the most damaged area and take them one unit at a time. Instead of standing back and looking at the entire city block and saying, oh my God, what am I going to do? Or worse yet is standing back and say, oh, it must have started there. Uh, Which is what television would have us believe. You know, the fire shows, the guy walks in, points at the wall and goes, it started right there. 
It, uh, yes. Actually, there's a very famous uh, gentleman who uh, was a renowned fire investigator, and they would bring him in, and he would look around and say, yeah, the fire started in that corner. The only reason he knew that is that he had lit the fire. <laughs> really? Yes. So, And was um, probably good at it. He got away with it for uh, a long time. Wrote, wrote a, a book. Um, now it, it eventually came crashing down on him, and, and he ended up going to jail. Well, good. Yeah. yeah. But you, um, you observe. You observe the entire site. Um, you do a, a methodical process where you, uh, I had a habit where I would walk around a, a fire that I was investigating uh, counterclockwise. And then I would walk, when I got back to the beginning, I would walk clockwise around the, the fire site and start again with the least damaged areas uh, the rooms of a house that weren't burned and walk in towards the area that had the most damage and look at the fire patterns. So for this city block, you did the same thing. You started with the areas, the tenant spaces that had the least damage. And okay, the fire didn't start here. You go to the next ones, all right, a little more damaged. Um, the next ones, a little more damaged. And you came down to the tenant space where... Uh, you focused your attention to find the origin because it was more damaged than the tenant spaces on either side of it. So you eliminated all these others. You could see how the fire had spread and had done significant damage in adjacent spaces. But the space in the middle of all of this had the most damage. And it ended up uh, being... Uh, determined that a, an electric space heater in that space had started the fire. The fire investigators uh, and the fire investigation team that worked on that fire, uh, it took them uh, a little longer than uh, a 60-minute uh, CSI or NCIS episode. Uh, it, it took about uh, six to seven days. and uh, But in the end, got a, a, a very good confidence level of what happened. Uh, pretty much determined it was accidental um, and what the actual ignition source had been, the space heater, too close to uh, uh, a bunk of uh, mahogany wood that was being dried, uh, and it was a, a supplier of uh, specialty woods for the construction industry was this one tenant space. It's amazing. So I want to I want to ask you what could be a slightly snarky question here. Okay, this is I'm going to turn on my my skepticism bit just okay. a little bit. Snark away. Snark away. Okay. I've seen fire sites. I've I've seen buildings that have burned, and it's basically just a big pile of crap. How do you? And this I don't mean to be this to be a pun, but how do you sift through that? I mean, seriously, when I'm looking at a big pile of what looks like ash and and wreckage, how do you really get through that? How do you figure out something as simple as, or as complicated as it was a space heater in this particular part of the structure? Well, first, recognize that fire is a physical phenomenon. And in that pile of, of rubble, everything that was there before the fire 
and during the fire is still there. Now, the building may have collapsed. It may have pancaked. Uh, there may be layers. Uh, the items may be wet. They may be charred. They may be dirty. Uh, but everything is still there from the attic all the way down to the, the floor. Uh, the rug on the floor is still there. The, the chair, the table in the room is still there. The ceiling is still there. It's only about maybe two or three feet high now and not a two-story house, but it's still there. So you, uh, taking care, peel the layers back. You take the roof off. You take the ceiling off. You look at the materials, uh, the furnishings. If you're expecting to find a fully furnished living room with high-end stereo equipment and TV, it should still be there. If it's not there, it wasn't there during the fire. Uh, if the carpet is intact, um, pull the carpet back. If the padding underneath is intact, or if it's not, you make note of all these things. So you're sort of a pyroarchaeologist or a pyropaleontologist. Yes. Uh, it gets even more interesting in wildland fires, determining what started a wildland fire. And a good fire investigator, a good wildland fire investigator, can find a burn match in the pine needles where you may have had a couple hundred acre wildland fire by looking at indicators of uh, the burn pattern, how the fire moved, how fast it moved, through the, the understory, uh, through the pine needles, whatever it is on the ground. And uh, being uh, just diligent and careful and marking certain indicators, the way char patterns are, the way leaves, burn leaves are frozen, uh, it'll give you an indication of uh, which direction the fire was moving and how fast it was moving. And again, you follow that back to uh, an area of origin, and you very carefully go through it. So once again, we're back to don't jump to conclusions. Exactly. You know, follow the trail, mm -hmm. do your homework, do your research, and and trust the facts. Mm -hmm. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Never occurred to me. A single match, they can track it back to something as small as that if they know how to follow the signs. And whether it was a um, a, a device that was used to start the fire, uh, somebody threw a road flare on the ground, or if it was a naturally occurring fire from, say, lightning, there will be different types of physical evidence left by a lightning strike. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Very, very cool. Thanks. You're welcome. It's worse than I feared. What is it? I'm afraid your son has the knack. The knack? The knack. It's a rare condition characterized by an extreme intuition about all things mechanical and electrical and utter social ineptitude. Can he lead a normal life? No. He'll be an engineer. <laughs> there, there. Don't blame yourself. Sorry, Pete. I couldn't resist. I want to thank my friend Pete Mulvihill for joining us on this podcast and talking about what was a very, very interesting topic. Pete, thank you so much. I know we're going to see you on, on other episodes. So folks, thanks again for tuning in and listening. For The Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. <laughs>